I found it fascinating that fairly often I would do a column that I thought of as kind of a throwaway, a filler, and yet invariably I would have any number of people who would get back to me and tell me how much they like that column. So <laughs> it seemed like the less I thought about what I was writing, the more they liked it. You're listening to episode 24, Signs of Spring. In late January and early February, there are some less obvious signs that the season is shifting from winter to spring. Today's episode is about subtleties. It's about a change in the angle of light. It's about a frozen, broken egg, squirrels, birds, and bitter cold. My name is Laura Tyler. I'm your producer and host. This is episode 24, Signs of Spring, written by Tom Theobald in early 1991 and read by Tom in 2021. Along the front range of the Rockies, spring is often more a war than a season. A conflict between competing elemental forces and the inexorable tilt of the earth toward summer. We are alternately held in the grip of sub-zero arctic cold with the earth frozen iron hard, buried under deep snow, warmed by a tantalizing downslope Chinook winds and bright sunshine. The conflict can continue into May, as one season grudgingly yields to the next, the seasonal indicators mixed and confusing. I spent my early childhood living on the shores of a southern Wisconsin lake, where the winters could be brutal and unrelenting. I still remember those bitter January nights, snuggled warmly under the covers when the temperature outside hovered at 25 below, listening for a slow roll of thunder out on the lake. It was the booming of the ice as a sheet three feet thick, two miles wide, and six miles long contracted in the deep cold. Finally, it could hold itself no longer, and the lake was rent like the tearing of a giant fabric as the boom rumbled through the dark, down the lake and out of hearing. I pulled deeper in the covers, delaying another frigid morning waiting for the school bus in the early light, and wondering when the spring would come. The ancient Druids, the Celtic priests of early Britain, celebrated the winter solstice by exhorting the sun to cease its slow descent toward the southern horizon, fearful that if it continued, they would be plunged into perpetual darkness and killing cold. As if in affirmation of their religious pleadings, the sun began the return, and in this they saw the rebirth of their world. We no longer dance around a midwinter fire to bring back the sun, and much of the mystery has gone out of the changing seasons. We look to weather satellites and long-range forecasts, meteorological gurus on the evening weather, 
read the bones for us. And yet, with all our technological sophistication, we still yearn for simple, tangible evidence of the coming of spring, when we are locked in winter. In an urban world, the predictions of Puxitani Phil are a media event, but outside the freeway and the condo, the signs are still there as they have been for millennia. On the 29th of January, I went out to do the morning chores. I looked into the chicken coop for the first time in several days to check the feed, and there, half buried in the winter accumulation of litter, lay four eggs, dirty, cracked, and frozen, the first of the season. In their ugliness, they were as beautiful as any spring flower, a symbol of winter's waning, a simple, elemental, earthy reminder that spring is on the way. From experience, I know that the bees are responding to the same forces the chickens do. In each colony, deep within the warmth of the winter cluster, the queen is beginning her first tentative egg-laying. There have been other signs as well. The smaller branches of the willows are starting to color, and the flower buds on the aspens and Chinese elms are starting to swell. In the basement, the winter squash is going soft, and peas, beans, and corn from last year's garden are disappearing rapidly from the freezer. In early January, the resident squirrels began a pell-mell chase around the yard, through the trees on their aerial highways, down along the split-rail fence, then up across the house and into the trees again as fast as they could go. It looked like a battle royal or a territorial dispute, but it was just their brand of courtship, not unlike some human courtships. Two weeks ago, as I worked on a column, I stepped out on the porch for a breath of fresh air or fresh inspiration. A squirrel was hard at work in the leaves beneath the choke cherries. As I watched, she gathered a tight little bundle in her mouth and scurried up the tall cottonwood into one of the many holes which have, over the years, served as homes for all manner of wildlife. In an instant she was down for another load, and in the few minutes that I watched, made several trips as she prepared her nest for the coming brood. Further up the tree, a pair of amorous starlings laid claim to yet another nest hole. Intellectually, we have unraveled the mystery of the seasons, reduced it all to data and statistics, but even in the most urbane of us there remains programmed deeply in our beings a response to the changing angle of the sun, to the slow drumbeat of the planets. While months of snow and cold remain ahead, in unspoken ways we dance about the winter fire and seek for signs of spring to come. The 
thing I think that hit me most in this reading is your descriptions of the cold. There's a real emotional quality, I think, to cold weather and darkness. I grew up in a house that had been what they would call a summer cottage. It was a house, it was two stories, but it was intended for summer. My parents bought the house, they had insulation blown in, but it remained a summer house. And when it was 25 below outside, we knew it was 25 below outside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what was that like? Well, the house stayed warm enough, but uh, by the time it got to 25 below, the pipes started to freeze, then the drains started to freeze. I've said many times that one of the reasons I got involved in sports was so that I could get a hot shower every day. (laughs) There is this experience growing up in a cold climate of really wanting to snuggle down into the blankets. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, and living on the lake was uh, wonderful to hear that booming of the ice contracting in the cold. I felt uh, even warmer as I snuggled down in the covers. Usually summer cottages are in places where people only live in the summer. So what kind of community did you have around you growing up? Was it pretty isolated or did you have a town around you? Well, Labor Day was kind of the conclusion of summer and most of the summer homeowners closed up their house and went home and we had the lake to ourselves from then until late spring when they returned Mm -hmm. so it was wonderful we weren't isolated Uh, you know we could get to town we had automobiles we had a school bus that picked us up each morning and brought us home each evening but the lake was ours The other people that came in the summer were just sort of temporary residents, and the lake didn't belong to them quite in the same way that it belonged to us. Mm -hmm. The winter in Colorado is very different, I think, than it is in a more north area. Do you want to describe what some of those differences feel like? Well, the beauty of Colorado is that we get a mix of winter and not summer, but warm weather. We'll have a period of snow and cold and wind blowing and drifting snow. But that's interspersed with a period of warmth. The snow melts off. The days are warm, perhaps even into the 60s. We can work outside. So Colorado is the perfect blend, I think, of winter and summer. So you talked a little bit about dancing around a midwinter fire to bring back the sun, these ancient rituals, and how today so much of that mystery has gone out of the changing seasons. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Well, we've taken all of the romance out of the change of seasons. We know, if you look at the weather forecasts now, they've become very good at predicting what the weather is going to be. There's no mystery to it anymore. There's no romance to it anymore. I don't disregard the technological improvements, but I like the mystery of dealing with the world as it presents itself to us. Mm -hmm. 
My favorite line in here, can you guess? I have no idea. <laughs> I feel like I want to make you guess. So it's this one. On the 29th of January, I went out to do the morning chores, looked into the chicken coop for the first time in several days to check the feed, and there half buried in the winter accumulation of litter lay four eggs, dirty, cracked, frozen, the first of the season, and in their ugliness, they were as beautiful as any spring flower. Yes. I love it. It's one of my favorites. I got lots of favorites, though, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't write them if they weren't my favorites. What's lovable about that line? Well, because that's a sign of spring that seems completely out of keeping with spring. And yet, as I said, it's as beautiful as any spring flower. It's a sign that, unknown to us, spring is on the way. The tilt of the earth is changing. The chickens respond to that, to the lengthening days, and I'm sure the bees do as well. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like what you're saying that is that the animals, the chickens, the bees, are maybe more tuned in than humans are to yes, the changing seasons. Yeah, more tuned in than most humans. I think there are people among us who are sensitive to the changing season, the lengthening day. But yes, I think the animals are especially attuned to the changing season because their survival depends upon it. Mm -hmm. um, any other thoughts about this, Tom? I sat down at the beginning, I sat down on a Sunday morning and I had to conjure up a story and it varied from one week to another depending on what was on my mind and what was happening and things like that it's a, a real discipline to do a column a week it doesn't just fall out of my mouth it doesn't just fall out of my fingertips i have to think every week what the story is going to be, and some weeks it's uh, more interesting than others. Well, Tom, how does that relate to this column? I was trying to relate my sense of the season. I think I did a pretty good job of it. Well, there's just something poignant about it because I'm remembering, I, I did have an experience this year of watching the sunlight change in a certain window as the seasons changed, like in the spring and early summer, we would get a band of sunlight on the dining room side that was just beautiful. It was like evening light mm -hmm. and it didn't last. And there's a sense of poignancy, like I won't see that again until next year yeah. at this time. Yeah. I think uh, far too many people are insulated from the reality of the seasons. They go from a temperature-controlled home, warmed by central heating in the winter, cooled by air conditioning in the summer, and they go to a workplace which is much the same. They're insulated from the realities of the seasons. Mm -hmm. And I, I recall many times coming out of work and from my corporate job 
and, and looking around and thinking that I had missed the whole day. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I left the corporate world, and that's one of the reasons why I gravitated toward beekeeping. Mm-hmm. I engaged the seasons by way of the bees. I engaged the seasons. Thank you for listening to Notes from the Bee Yard. We publish new episodes on Fridays at noon. Join us next week for episode 25. In the meantime, hop on over to notesfromthebr.buzz to subscribe.